Welcome to Game Night with the Saints. We're your hosts, Jess and Brad St. Pierre. We're a husband and wife who have a passion for board games, and this podcast is dedicated to sharing that passion. Okay, so we are back for our first episode in 2022, which I'm going to keep forgetting to write and say 2022 for probably the next six months, but... We're excited to be back with everyone, and we hope everyone's doing well in the new year. And if you're joining us for the first time, this is our ninth episode of Game Night with the Saints, and our normal format is Brad and I take the audience through a board game memory from the past couple of weeks, and then we jump into what we call our notable news and crowdfunding corner. And then we have a topic or a game review that we cover for a majority of the podcast. And this week it is uh, Dinosaur Island Roar and Write by Pandasaurus Games. So with that said, Brad, what's your memory for this week? Yeah, sure. Great to be back. It's, uh, you know, feeling fresh, got some games in. It's a nice change of pace for us. <laughs> uh, and my memory is uh, playing Great Western Trail 2nd Edition. And that's our first uh, game of it. And we're total Great Western Trail newbies. We never played the first edition at all. Um, but that was our anniversary gift to each other. And we have a tradition where for our wedding anniversary, we gift each other a a game that we can share and play together and because this was the leather anniversary we decided on great western trail because that was the closest we could find uh last year we did rococo for the con anniversary i think that was a little closer (laughs) um but anyway so the way the job market played out for us this game is we got maybe 16 or 7 cowboys out of the possible 18 which mathematically is insane to me. But what I really liked about this is because we're both pretty stubborn people, neither of us went big on cowboys. We, we saw it happening and we were just like, eh, whatever, more <laughs> cowboys, not a big deal. I kind of focused on the train and just did a lot of builder stuff. And it was just a really good laugh that neither one of us gave in to the like peer pressure the game was throwing at us basically and kind of a reminder too that some of the best board game stories come from the unintentional random aspects of the game and not really anything that was maybe intended by the designer yeah it was a lot of fun i definitely was making cracks about it raining cowboys <laughs> when we were playing <laughs> yeah what about you Jess what's your board game memory for the show so um, we got intrepid to the table again, and that's by Uproarious Games. Yes. And the first time you play Intrepid, you play through like a training simulator, right? To see if you're ready to go to the International Space Station. And we passed. So I thought, okay, we're ready. It was hard, but we're ready to go. We were not. And we had, <laughs> <laughs> we lost gloriously right into shortly into the what is the yellow is the second level of difficulty in the scenario which was the meteor shower right and uh we had we had a lot of fun losing and for me really it was actually um 
when we were laughing about it at the end, like Brad goes, GG, meteor shower. And I just started cracking up at the end. And I was like, you know what? I think it's a game player. It really showed for me I've come a long way from when Brad and I first started dating because I was such a sore loser. There was a time when I would have been so mad that we lost like that, but we just had a lot of fun with it. And I I am uh, kind of proud of myself how far I've come that I can enjoy a game and lose at a game now. <laughs> yeah. So let's jump into our notable news and crowdfunding corner. There's a lot we've got to talk about, I think. Yeah, yeah. Lots happened in board games since our last show. Um, one major piece of news is that Asmodee has been sold to the Embracer Group, which is... I want to say a Swedish investment firm that's usually specializing in video games, um, traditionally PC and console games, but they've started to move into other markets. They just acquired uh, Dark Horse Comics, for example. Yeah, and I mean, that could bring some exciting things to board games, right? Like Dark Horse, more Dark yeah, Horse. Yeah, licensing, sure. Uh, comics and IPs into to board games but you know it it also I think is going to make the market interesting because Brad and I talk a lot about is there a board game bubble and if it bursts you know how how do smaller publishers deal with that and you see like asthma days like a monster in the board gaming industry so and now they're even bigger that they've been acquired because they have all these additional assets like nobody knew until they were doing their presentation that they had what purchased miniature market right? yeah yeah that was a huge surprise um it'll be interesting to see because miniature market is one of the biggest online uh slash friendly local gaming stores because they also have a physical location uh that i'm aware of so it'll be interesting to see if they start getting you know asmodee exclusives or something um because and frankly i would be totally okay if asmodee deprecated their um regular web store because it's atrocious and miniature markets interface is so much better but it's just it just goes to show right that you know asmodee is a huge player and they're, they're here to stay right even with you know uh, plaid hat and other small publishers leaving their umbrella they're not going anywhere right well and i think i i definitely want to see what happens because like we said everyone was surprised that they were they own miniature market and because of their policy the no return policy so it'll be interesting to see if that gets walked back at all or if it's all just going to be handled through their subsidiary of miniature market you know what i mean like yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a uh, timed return policy, and you return it to the shop that you got it, not directly to Asmodee uh, for for parts requests and stuff like that. You don't go directly to Asmodee; you go to your retailer. So they've kind of, and, and that's more for traditional markets as well, right? You don't return your broken laptop to Dell; you return to Amazon where you bought it or whatever, right? I mean, I don't know. The manufacturer usually has a warranty on their product. So if I buy a Dell, I'm calling them. Yeah, but if it's within 30 days or something, right, okay. it's going back to Amazon. And that's basically what Asmodee's policy is. Hmm. So what's up next in the news world? Yeah, yeah. So big announcement coming out of Kickstarter. They're moving to blockchain. 
this is something I really don't think they needed to do and they haven't really stated a good reason as to why they're going this way. Yeah, this news, so this news actually came out when we had recorded, we had literally recorded our last, our holiday gift buying episode. And I think the the news hit like the next day when I was editing yeah. to publish. And I said to Brad, I'm like, oh, oh, should we pull our crowdfunding corner from it? And we agreed no, because we didn't know enough. It was very new news. And to be honest, I really don't, I mean, I'll just say it to be very clear. I do not support crypto. I do not support NFTs. That's where I think my husband and I both are and for multiple reasons, Um, but not going down that particular (laughs) road on this podcast. But um, I don't feel we know anything. Like even when uh, Kickstarter, they put out like a long tweet or something uh, after the, because the communities had a very understandably upset reaction to this news. Yeah, they're and, negative. And um, negative, that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> and um, and so, you know, they put out a, a tweet and they promised what a, a white paper. And I think everyone's just waiting to, to see, but, you know, I mean, you and I talk about it. I feel, I feel bad for the small publishers and yeah, the independent game tough. designers. Yeah, Kickstarter has kind of made themselves indispensable, especially for smaller publishers to market their games that haven't been released yet. And I think they're the ones that are going to suffer the most from this. And to date, Kickstarter has provided no real rationale on how this will benefit either the consumer or the creators on the Kickstarter platform. So really interested to see what's going to be in that white paper because, you know, there's environmental impacts here and if there's no tangible benefit then the obvious answer is money right but whose money kickstarter's money you know the creatives are not seeing that return the consumer is definitely not seeing that return right so it's just a really weird thing to do and i think what we're gonna do um in the short term is turn crowdfunding corner into a more opportunistic uh segment And uh, when we can find stuff that we can cover without Kickstarter in the near term until we understand the situation better, we will cover it. But we tried to find stuff for this episode on GameFound, and almost all of GameFound is pledge managers for previously run Kickstarters right now. So it puts us in an awkward position because we don't want to be even secondhand supporting Kickstarter right now. So if a project is exclusively on GameFound, you know, we'll probably try to cover it because I do actually think GameFound's a pretty nice platform. Definitely check it out if you are affected by the Kickstarter news and trying to find an alternative. Well, and GameFound has put out some news at the end of the year that they are making improvements. So it is worth if, you know, you have if you are, you know, a small designer publisher and you're looking to put some things out like I know they've done some work to update their platform and work with, I think, um, trying to make it easier with like the, what is it? The VATs that Europe has yeah, to that. deal with. And, um, you know, 
but we know, and you know, we're not criticizing, we're not judging any, you know, company or person that is using Kickstarter because they're trying to make a living. Well, and some of these projects have been planned years in advance in some cases, right? A couple of years probably. And to pivot from what was going to be your marketing, uh, your marketing platform to a completely different platform, it's just not tenable for a lot of projects, right? You know, we're going to talk about a Pandasaurus game here on the podcast. They've got an upcoming Kickstarter. There's no way they could pivot to another platform in time, even if, uh, I don't know what their stance is on cryptocurrency and NFTs and what Kickstarter is doing, but even if they don't like it, there's no way they could pivot off of that platform, right? So they're just stuck. And I think it was really not great for Kickstarter to just drop this on literally everyone with no, no buy-in and no say of any kind. And, you know, no, no community forum, nothing. Just we're moving to this. You'll get a paper about it later, maybe. Yeah. So, you know, we'll keep our eyes peeled for that, that white paper. And, you know, we will obviously talk about it in whatever episode after it comes out and, you know, what it had to say and what our thoughts are. But I do encourage any of our listeners, if you know of like, you know, an alternative platform that we can be checking out for Kickstarters that isn't using crypto, blockchain, NFTs that you feel we should check out. Or if you know there's one on GameFound that you think, you know, we should take a look at this exclusive to there, please feel free to, you know, shoot us a, a, a DM uh, or um, an email. We would be happy to take a look and consider like featuring them on our crowdfunding corner. Yeah, definitely. So that's more news than we've had in any yeah. of our episodes. <laughs> Welcome to 2022, where it hasn't settled down at all, folks. Right, yeah. <laughs> Let's jump in and change it to Dinosaur Island, Roar and Write. I'm, I'm excited to talk about this. All right, sounds good. Yeah, so Dinosaur Island, Roar and Write is a roll and write re-implementation of the 2017 game Dinosaur Island, which was a more traditional worker placement game. Uh, Dinosaur Island Roar and Write is designed by Brian Lewis, David McGregor, and Marissa Mazura. I apologize if I messed up your last name. And is published by Pandasaurus Games. Uh, so as we said, it's a roll and write. So there are dice rolling and recording things on a sheet, usually via pencil. And in this case, the sheets keep track of your resources and are also where you'll draw the various buildings you make throughout the game. And the game's played over three seasons, with each season being comprised of two action phases followed by a run park phase. And each action phase starts with a snake draft of sorts. Um, so if you're not familiar with a snake draft, it's a form of drafting where the person who is currently the first player will pull uh, a number of action dice out of the bag dictated by the player count. So for two players, it's five dice and roll them. Then the first player chooses a die followed by each other player in turn order until each person has one die. Then the draft proceeds in reverse turn order. So the last player chooses their second die first until you get all the way back to the first player. And that's what's, what is typically called a snake draft. Um, and these dice give you resources, so they could give you like DNA or let you build a road or an attraction or maybe give you security or coins or something, right? And once the draft is complete, players use their dice as workers on the main board to get actions via a worker placement-like uh, mechanic. 
and Jess will cover the actions of the main board in her set the table. Uh, in addition to the two action phases, each season also contains a run park phase. So in this phase, players collect rewards for any attractions they've built. So, you know, like coins for food stands or whatever. Uh, and then the hired specialists that they've uh, managed to acquire activate. And then from there, you take visitors on a tour through your park, which can boost excitement. And the excitement track represents how much buzz your park is getting in the media and stuff like that. And it gives you a bunch of rewards every time you run your park based on how much excitement you've earned. Uh, finally, you check to see if you have any unsecured threat, which will increase your death toll. And uh, death tolls or deaths are worth negative points and can also cause disasters, um, which I think we're going to talk about later. And then at the end of the three seasons, the player with the most victory points is the winner. Yeah. So I'm going to set the table. And if you're, like I said, new to the podcast, our set the table, I just kind of describe what you're looking at on the table when you're playing the game that we're reviewing or discussing for the episode. And in this case, Dinosaur Island Roar and Write has a single game board that's two-sided. And it depends on your player account which side you use. Um, and that is in the in the center of your table. And on that game board is where you have your dice placement options. And there are five different placement options, um, at least for the two-player. I got to confess, I didn't look at the other side <laughs> of the board, but I think they're the same for both sides. Yeah, they're the same. The main difference is for the four-player side, each space has two spots for dice instead of just one okay thank you <laughs> obviously during this pandemic brad and i were talking about that we have only played two player accounts of all yeah our games. yeah okay so we have our game board in the center and we have our dice placement options which are the top option is you get to make dinosaurs and then the second option is you can either get two coins or two security. The third option is you can get either two regular DNA or one advanced DNA. The fourth option is you can double your dice face that you selected, um, but your opponents also get one. So, for example, if you decided you wanted to double uh, particular let's say coins you wanted to get you know two coins well each of your opponents will get one coin so um what you can't use that space though for though is attractions right and then the final option is you can get either three roads or one of the uh attraction slash extra buildings which is a ride a merch stand or a food stand and at the bottom of the board, you'll see the reminder text letting you know you can always choose to exchange two coins for either one road or one advanced DNA or one security. Now, if you're looking at your board, either to the left or the right, on the left of the board, you have your three, what I call, special buildings. And they, are, they vary depending on your game setup. Um, we tried to pick different buildings each time we played yep. and you can then on the right side of the board, you have your three unique specialists for that game. And again, every game we played, we tried to play with unique specialists. 
In the center near your board, you'll have the big red bag filled with 10 amber colored dice. And each of the dice has different uh, symbols of the resource or um, you know what you get from that side of the dice. And it will also have threat if there's any threat associated with the dice sides on the different dice sides. And then in front of each player, they have the player sheets that Brad was talking about and um, a pencil and possibly an adorable dinosaur eraser you will be loath to actually use. I feel so bad every time I make a mistake. That's honestly <laughs> my biggest criticism to Pandasaurus games about, about this is you made your erasers too cute. You should have made ugly dinosaur yeah, erasers. a little bit every time. But I will say they work remarkably well. Yeah, yeah. good quality. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's our set the table and Brad set up the game, so let's talk about it. Sure. So if you've played Dinosaur Island, this is going to sound really familiar because, like we said, Dinosaur Island, Roar and Write, is a re-implementation. And I think it really nails the theme of running a dinosaur amusement park just like regular Dinosaur Island did. I think it's actually probably even stronger here. Uh, Because you're rewarded for building a cohesive park where positioning matters. Whereas with Dinosaur Island, that was hardly even a consideration, right? Yeah, I mean, so think, think Jurassic Park, right? When we did our holiday gift episode, we talked about Dinosaur Island as like that game. If you have a friend who loves like Jurassic Park and Jurassic World movies or books, like this is a game that might pull them into a hobby well so is dinosaur island roar and right like it really gives you that feel and you do the things that you think about when you think about jurassic park you have the dna you're playing with to like build all these different dinosaurs and on the roar and right you know you have you have um different area size for them which i found interesting like they could only go like you have i don't know but you have a grid essentially of little squares that you have to draw over and you are limited in your space of what you can build and each of them similar to the original you have one paddock for them and you can only get so many of each kind um but yeah but it it's really that spatial element just drives it home so much more for me right because of course large carnivores are going to take up more space than small carnivores completely unrepresented in regular dinosaur island but here Small carnivores are, uh, I want to say four by four and large carnivores are five by five for their paddock, right? So they take up much more space. Are there any carnivores or are they all omnivores and the smaller paddocks? Uh, Velociraptors, I think are carnivores, right? They're the mid tier. Yeah. So that's the small carnivore. Okay. I see what you're saying. Sorry. Mental, mental (laughs) brain lapse there. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think that spatial element really just drives home the, I am a park administrator. I got to figure out where to put all this stuff. I got to connect it with roads. This, you know, the tour we're going to have our guests go on needs to make sense. Right. And you're rewarded for that in the game. And that's all stuff that was missing from the original dinosaur Island that I think they have nailed here. Yeah. And they even have an app yeah. For this, for this, um, for their uh, roll and write, their roar and write, like they have an app for it, which I have to say one of the things about, I want to give a kudos to Pandasaurus as a publisher. They really engage with people out there on social media because I wouldn't even have known there was an app 
if their yep. social media person hadn't been kind enough to, you know, respond to us saying we played it and said, hey, have you tried the app? And I thought, well, I didn't even know there was an app. Sure, I'll try the app. Like, yeah. I yeah. appreciate that. Yeah, they're responsive. They're engaged. And uh, to bring it back to Roran right here, I think the manual is also great. So let's step back for one minute. This is Jess and I's first roll and write. Yeah. And we had traditionally avoided the genre uh, more or less because we didn't really see anything that particularly grabbed us. And also the way that a lot of roll and writes are marketed, it kind of feels like the signature hook for the genre is that you can play it with any number of people, right? And 99% of Jess and I's game time is two player. So that was kind of like, okay, well, what do we need a game where we can play with like 15 people, right? Who cares? Well, it's also the worry of does that game play as well at two players as it does with more, right? Because yeah. like I said a few minutes ago, it's been almost two years since this pandemic has started. And Brad and I were talking about today, I think we can count on one hand the number of times we've had the opportunity to play with anyone other than each other, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah so we kind of dismissed the roll and write genre a little bit until we tried this. And the only reason we even got this is because we wanted Dinosaur World, right? So we went in for the Kickstarter and you could add Roar and Write for you know, not that much money. I forget how much it was, but it was, you know, enough for me to be like, okay, right. Well, and I said to you, I wanted to try one. I felt that, you know, we had talked about expanding into our podcast and our content that we should try the genre. And so we did. Yeah, so we did. And I'm, I'm really glad we did because Dinosaur Island Roar and Write, which I will probably get tired of saying, um, really <laughs> surprised me. It, is not what I expected. First off, it's capped at four players, right? And there's a real meaty game here. This is not simply like, well, we flipped over some cards and we drew a bunch of boxes on a sheet and then we're going to tally up scores and we're done, right? Or it's not like a glorified math puzzle like Welcome To or anything like that, right? There's a real game here. There's dice drafting. There's work replacement. There's resource allocation. Like, you know, there's a lot going on here and I'm I'm here for it. Yeah, I um, I want to say I was very pleasantly surprised and happy that there were no hooligans if you played Dinosaur <laughs> Island, the original. There are these things called hooligans that no one can explain to me how they got to our island and how they got through what, what should be incredible security. They're all Navy SEALs. <laughs> so if you played Dinosaur Island, the original, and are wondering if Roar and Wright is for you, and you're like, please don't let there be hooligans, there are no hooligans in the Roar and Wright. <laughs> the Navy SEAL thing is a, a joke from our written review of Dinosaur Island, uh, and I'll link that in the show notes for this episode. But uh, anyway, to get back to the manual of Dinosaur Island Roar and Wright, it was really important to me, and they nailed this, so it's a kudos to them, but it was really important to me where in a game where you're expected to draw things that the manual is full of pictorial examples so that nothing is left to textual interpretation, right? Because in our first game, and we only had a couple of questions, right? Because if you played Dinosaur Island, you kind of know what you're getting into. And also the rule book's there well done. So it was very easy to explain the game. 
but we had a couple of questions, right? Well, can you curve roads? Well, let's go look in the rule book. There's a picture, right? No ambiguity. Yes, roads can curve, right? Well, can buildings touch on the corners? No, they can't. There's a picture and it says explicitly, this is not allowed, right? And I think that is so key for this genre. And I really appreciate that the rule book is just full of those picture-based examples. Well, you and I talk about how teaching games is a skill. So, I mean, I feel that when game publishers take that extra step to try to make it easier to learn and teach games, I, I just think it speaks volumes. Because if you want people to enjoy your game, they have to be able to easily learn and know how to play your game. Yeah, definitely. So... Talking about curving roads is about the tour feature that you touched on a little bit earlier, which is um, each season when you run your park, you have the opportunity to take your guest through um, it. And I will say in the app, this is really cute. You get to pick a vehicle, (laughs) (laughs) which we'll talk about the app in a little bit more separate detail on its own. But, um, and you know, so each season you want to try to build your park in such a way because there's exits around the, the grid square and you start in the same place every time, which is what the welcome HQ headquarters. Okay. You started in headquarters each time and so you try as you're building to envision three seasons of where can you place your buildings because once you go through a building it gets an x in it um and but the first time you go through it on a tour as long as it's connected by roads um you get a one right yeah one excitement one excitement for it um so you want to maximize that each of the Um, run park phase you want to try and get your guests through as many new buildings as possible and to the best exit possible so yeah definitely so it's really and i think i mentioned um i've mentioned this before i definitely on my micro uh twitter review of isle of cats but i love spatial puzzles like we were playing old school Dr. Mario, <laughs> like Jane, I love, I love things that I have to like fit things together. And that, that's a lot of fun to me with this game. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think that definitely is a, uh, part that elevates it a little bit, but I want to talk about the dice placement now. Okay. So that system is really interactive for a worker placement game. And what I mean by that, so in a traditional worker placement game, right, you place your worker on a spot, nobody else can go to that spot. You probably get a different action that's like a little bit worse than what you were looking for or whatever, right? Not here, right? Here what you can do is you can put your die on top of the die of the person who just put theirs down. But in order to do that, you take the threat that is face up on that die but that means you're not barred from the action ever, but you've got to constantly weigh the risk reward of, well, do I get this three threat to be able to make dinosaurs this turn? Cause I really would like to make dinosaurs this turn, but I'm going to have to take three threat to do that because somebody already used that spot. Right. And I think the game is better for it because you know, th- these are not, these actions are not created equal. Right. You always want to make dinosaurs on your turn, right? 
that's that's like the best action and then conversely the action where you double something is pretty mediocre because your opponent gets something for nothing right yeah and uh we haven't played it but they do offer an alternate rule in there that you can make it so placement is more limited we just haven't played with that where like for example if you have a three threat die you can't place like a two or a one on top of it but if it's a one you could place like a two or oh, a three. is that a variant yeah variant oh, uh, cool. alternate alternate play we just haven't we haven't done it yet but you know for those for those who prefer to say well you can't that you're just simply stopped from placing here well then that makes the threat and on the dice very interesting I mean, it was it was an important factor in the original game. Threat was a factor in the original Dinosaur Island. But I feel it's interesting here because when you draft the dice, right? So in the two-player game, there's five dice. Like Brad said, the first, it's the snake draft. So let's say Brad's player one. He would take one, and then I would take two, and then he would take one. And then there's one dice left, and that dice that's left there, we both get the resource choice if it's like an either or thing or whatever's on it, but you also get the threat. So sometimes I know Brad and I would look at it and be like, I can't leave this three out there, <laughs> even though I don't want it because I'm going to end up with like six eaten people at the end of my thing. If I get three more threat or whatever it is. So, um, but then the threat carries into the placement because it's like, well, like Brad said, I get to go, he gets to go first. So it's like, well, I'm going to throw this three down because Jess isn't going to choose to make dinosaurs or Jess isn't going to choose to get the two coins or whatever it is because I won't want three threat. So it's really nice the way the threat weaves itself into the game. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the dice draft was way more subtle and way more clever than I thought it was going to be because of what you just talked about, right? Um, because of the way the action spaces work and how you take threat for an already used action, you're not just evaluating what resources you'll get from your dice draft, but also how much threat is on those dice, right? And, you know, three threat dice are great for blocking people from using the action, but they typically have less resources, right? So it's a, do I want to benefit my own position or do I want to block other people off, right? And that one extra die at the end is also relevant, right? Do you leave the, you take the three threat die so that you have a three threat die and you leave the one threat die and that benefits your opponent because you're both only getting one threat now or do you take the one threat and you both get three threat because you have a better security setup or something, right? And it's just all these little considerations from a relatively simple dice draft, um, which frankly really surprised me, kind of blew me away once I started to understand the implications of that system. Well, yeah. I mean, there was a few times it was like, like Brad said, the no threat, right? Leaving no threat on the table would benefit us both. But it's like, I don't want Brad to get two coins too. Like, <laughs> he's awfully close to buying that like water park thing. I don't want him to have that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, they, they took what was a pretty simple dice draft and they put all these little micro decisions into it that makes it something really kind of crunchy. Well, and what I like, um, so in the original Dinosaur Island, I'm just going to, talk a little bit about it 
So if you've played it and you're trying to understand the differences when you're listening to the podcast, right? When you would go through like the round, each round, like your specialist and everything would change depending, like the market would change every time. But in the roar and right, it's set. And you know, going into it, these are the three special buildings you can buy. And these are the three specialists that you can acquire. And then there's the set ones that are on the, um, is that the park run sheet, right? Um, That everyone has access to. So you both have access to the same things at the same cost, which is a little bit different than the original game. But I like that because it's a very, you go, you both go into it. It's an even playing field. And especially at a two player, I want to say that, you know, if you're like us and you have your roommate or your partner or your spouse, whoever, you know, you're playing games with one-on-one, this game does play very well at two players because to Brad's point, I always get to go, like if he's the first player, I get to do the first dice placement and the second round before the run park phase because of how the first player switches back and forth. And so I don't have to worry, at least in the two-player version, of if I'm going to get to make my dinosaurs with additional threat because I'll get to place first that second turn when I'm the first player. So it plays really well. I would be interesting for me when it's safe to do so to play this with more players and see how that particular aspect shakes out. Yeah, I bet this game is absolutely cutthroat at three because (laughs) you don't get any additional placement spaces and you've got way more dice, right? You go up to seven dice instead of five. And I think there is where you're going to see having to make tough choices about how much threat you can take to get the actions you want because you won't get, like if you're the third player, no guarantee you're going to get to make dinosaurs without absorbing some threat, right? So I think that would be really interesting to see. It's unfortunate we haven't had the chance to do that, but such are the times. Yeah, and I don't think with your parents coming to visit us for their holiday visit in, uh, in the next week or so that this will be a game we play with them. Yeah, probably so. not. Because <laughs> uh, it, is, it is crunchier than, than I was expecting. It's not really a... There's a lot to sink your teeth into, if you will. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, let's go back to the um, the buildings and the specialists. I really enjoyed how varied they are. Um, like, take the lawyer, for example, right? He lets you ignore the first 10 deaths for the purposes of disasters in your park, right? And he also gives you a coin for every two deaths in your park during the run park phase, right? So if you decide to hire him, you can skimp on security for quite a while before it starts to affect you. And a game with the lawyer is gonna play substantially different than one with, for you know, example, the paramedic or something, which gives you extra security, right? Well, and I just wanna to touch real quick, both buildings and specialists have an instant thing that happens when you acquire yep. them. And then they have a run park action that happens. And I just, I found that really interesting with um, with this game and deciding who to buy or what to invest in for it because of what they do. And the lawyer is a good example of that. Yeah, yeah. 
And I don't think the lawyer actually has an instant effect because his effect is the first 10 deaths do mm -hmm. not affect you um, for disasters. You still get the negative points, but you can probably make that up because you'll be making tons of cash, right? Um, but the other thing that's important about this, right, where and where I think this really elevates the experience above vanilla Dinosaur Island is it's completely opt-in, right? If you don't like what the lawyer does in your game, you don't have to build them and well, build them. You don't have to pay. <laughs> you don't have to pay for them. Um, you don't have to pay the coins to hire them and you'll still be completely competitive because there's so much other stuff you can be doing in the game, right? Whereas vanilla dinosaur Island had two things that were variable from game to game, the plot twists and the objectives, right? And the plot twists were just something that happened to you. You don't really get a choice about it. It was just something that was going to happen. And the objectives, because they're your win con, you always had to be moving towards them in Dinosaur Island, right? Base Dinosaur Island. Here, you know, there are plenty of other ways to get points in the game. So if you think the lawyer looks really janky, just don't hire him. Go do something else, and that's fine. You're still going to be completely competitive. The game is still different because the lawyer is present, but you don't necessarily have to opt into what he does to the game. Well, and even the base specialist, like the security specialist is almost one that I almost always go for right away because security, like, like you said, the threat and the deaths have disasters and those disasters have repercussions of like losing, for example, DNA or losing roads or whatever it is that you decide you're going to go with. So, you know, the base, the base specialists are pretty strong too. And, yeah. and I think, you know, and they have, like I said, they have their instant and then they have their run park, um, abilities as well. So it's, it's fun to yeah. try and math out cause the game plays pretty quickly. And it's, it's one of the things I think you and I like about the setup is fast and the game, I, pl I played longer each time we played as we were getting ready for this podcast because we were really trying different strategies yeah. and messing around with it a bit. But I feel like, you know, if if you, if you find yourself like us with a toddler who's exhausting, um, <laughs> you're just <laughs> looking for a game that's quick to set up and you can play it in the evening when you only have like an hour this this game does that which is a, we talk about it almost every podcast that's a huge box to tick for us and it's one of the reasons we haven't maybe played dinosaur island as much as the setup and the tear down and the time play yeah. for us even with a short game is long so yeah but i mean the the specialists and the buildings are so varied but you don't have to engage with them if you think they're silly or whatever right like you go for the security specialist almost every time right and in one game, I decided to build the PR guy first. And yeah, I definitely had some disasters to deal with and some deaths and stuff, but the PR guy pumped my excitement so hard. And I won that game and I'm pretty sure I won because I made that choice, right? And, but you could have very easily snatched that victory back because the difference was only a few points, right? In fairness to Brad, he's won almost every game but one. The only game I won was the last <laughs> one we played that I played with the app. <laughs> and I told him, I said, I think I have to admit I may not be that great at this game on the podcast. <laughs> but yeah, let's let's talk about 
the the way this game plays with timing too right um so when you earn coins or roads they have to be used instantly unless you want to bank them and each coins and roads both have a bank where you can bank up to five right total for the whole game for the whole game yep so five roads and five coins and anything else has to be spent immediately and this does a funny thing to people's brains i think because you go well i gotta spend it what do i spend it on well i'll spend it on this right and it changes the game from this like long-term overarching strategic thing which many euro games are and dinosaur island vanilla kind of was to an extent right i gotta interrupt you every time you say vanilla all i can think of is god you're showing you're a wow player (laughs) well not anymore um (laughs) true but uh yeah so base dinosaur island right um it, it changes it from that strategic model to this much more tactical thing where you're just thinking about the next thing right i want to build the you know velociraptor culinary experience and so i'm going to put my coins towards that or i want you know roads here here and here so i'm going to do that right you don't think about well you know if i connect this building now and then i can connect this other building later and then i'll have like an eight building tour right there's no no real long-term planning and i think that actually does the game favors from a time perspective because it'll make the game shorter if nobody can long-term strategize well and like we said it's at least at the two player it's short like there's i mean you have your first player i'm first player and then boom we're in the run park phase so you have to make you have to be willing to make you can't be indecisive i guess is what i'm trying to get to you can't be indecisive you have to make a decision of your strategy and Sometimes we talk about it like, man, looking back on my strategy, it would have been great if I could have bought the, you know, PR guy the first for the first run park phase. You know what I mean? Like, so you have to decide quickly what where you're going with your investments and things like that. And what, you know, there's just no because there's only two more run park phases after that. So there's six total turns you have the opportunity to build your strategy over yep yep and uh and i really you, you've mentioned it already but i really like how some buildings and specialists play off the instant spending mechanic for the coins um with their instant bonuses right so i meant i just mentioned this building because it sticks in my mind <laughs> but the velociraptor culinary experience which when it's built gives you two excitement per small carnivore in the paddock you attach it to, right? So that's its instant bonus. So if there's only one dinosaur in the paddock you attach to, only two excitement. So you want to complete it when you have like a full paddock of velociraptors, right? So four to get the eight excitement. But the game is constantly pushing you to put coins into it so you don't have to bank them or you don't have to use them on something else, right? And it leaves you this interesting choice of when to actual actually finish it. And I think when I built that structure, I built it with only three dinosaurs. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to get the fourth dinosaur before the last run park phase, right? So I should just build this now because otherwise I just won't get it. And 
the game pushed me that way with the way that coins are instantaneously spent. You can't, you don't have a pool of coins. You've got to make these choices in the moment. Well, and I saw, I mean, depending on the random, like the randomness is what the dice rolls, right? Depending on the dice and the spots and the thread of what goes in, sometimes coins can be hard to come by. Yeah. And so, um, you have to instantaneously spend them, but you also have to have them. And, that's where we talk about like that threat blocking. Well, if I see that Brad's trying to build the Raptor paddock, well then I'm going to block the like security and the two coins on him when I can, right? When he's the first player and he's going to build his dinosaurs to make sure he gets those Velociraptors. Well, I'm going to make sure you don't get the security so they don't eat everybody in the first round. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. And I think disasters really, put more weight into the decision to have unsecured threat because in original dinosaur island a lot of the time you would use not having enough security as a way to get first player which kind of felt disingenuous to the whole experience right (laughs) whereas here it's like well you know two guys got eaten so you have to suffer a disaster and these disasters are no joke right the most benign one is probably lose four dna and that's a big deal. But there's also, you know, get roads blown up, lose an attraction, you know, or a dinosaur paddock, which would be catastrophic to your score, right? And you get to choose which ones of these you do based on the moment, but they're all bad. So this feels like you are really actively trying to manage your threat in a way that Dinosaur Island never really made me feel. I, I agree 100%. In fact, I have that note on my paper too, that I really feel that the threat because of the disasters and the impact of them on your strategy and your park and your overall play is much more serious. Like It's much more nerve-wracking when you get through counting the excitement and you have to go to, to that part. It's like, please, please let me have counted right that nobody dies. Yeah, right. So I want to touch on the app. Sure. Um, just take a moment here. So I have to say the app is really well done. I didn't know what I was expecting. Um, but it is, it's a very nice, clean, like performs well app, um, that I've seen, I mean, out there. Um, I really like how easy they make it to place the structures and the roads and um, the cute dino images they put on each paddock for you is nice. <laughs> I like that it auto-tallies my DNA because my sheets sometimes get really messy when I'm scribbling on it because I don't listen well, apparently, to rule book instructions of how to neatly <laughs> cross off my DNA. The auto-counting of points is nice. Um, there's a couple cons that Brad and I talked about because we played the games we played with it he did paper and I did the app. Right. So um, the con is if one, if like you're playing with the app, you can't see really what your opponent is doing. And I, and I think to some extent that takes, it made it feel a little bit more one side of the table than it did when we were both playing with paper. Yeah. I mean, it definitely felt more solitary to me. So I was playing with paper. Um, and when Jess was playing with the app, it felt more solitary to me because I couldn't look across the table and see how her park was coming together, which I could do when she was with paper as well. Right. And 
that's part of the fun of the game is like, well, my park looks like this. What are you doing? Oh, your park looks much nicer than mine. Right. Like, <laughs> and just seeing that. And, you know, I think you lose a little bit something when the other person's head is just buried in their phone or whatever the whole game. Yeah. And there is a go back feature when like you're, you're placing like a roads and stuff, but I messed up one game with the app and in the run park phase, I didn't click in the first phase where like you're doing your merch stand, your food stands. And I missed two excitement points in the second run park phase. Uh, so close, Pandasaurus. I've been asking for undo buttons in every app-based game that we've played. And this one finally has it, but not for phases. Yeah, I couldn't go back. So once, and it does, in fairness to Pandasaurus, it does ask. But I, you know, I was fast clicking and I yep, hit okay. Sure. And then I was like, wait a minute, I didn't do my like the set of buildings and it was like, Oh crap. So I missed then that excitement and I, and it's harder without the paper then to like, know well, what did that do? Because right. it's all automatic, which the math at the end, I appreciated so much because usually by the end of the night in our games, my brain doesn't want to do math and I get my phone out and have to calculate. So, um, and, but I think the app has some other applications like you and I've talked, if you end up having to travel for work, it might be something like we could, you could play and like, we could do like some kind of video chat. I feel. Yeah. If you, if you had a way to communicate the dice faces to yeah. people, you could probably play this game remotely with the app. Yeah. Um, but we think just personally for us that we'll stick with the, the paper, but yeah, which, but, which is weird because usually we're on the side of app integrated board games but here the the old analog standbys seem to ring truer for us yeah so um but yeah i mean i i think that you know if you're running low on sheets or if you just prefer that's just your preferred method i think the app's a very viable option for playing with the roaring right and i think it also has uses a few other uses as well right i think it would be really good for accessibility so if somebody's visually impaired, right, the app has, a, you know, you can zoom in and out on the app, right? So these really small icons that might be tough to see on the sheet for somebody who's extremely nearsighted or something, not a problem when you can zoom on the app, right? Uh, so I think it's got usage there. Um, I would say you probably want to use a tablet instead of a cell phone if you're going to use the app, right? Because you used the phone and uh, that was a little tough, right? Uh, I mean, our phones aren't like small phones, so yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, they're like mini tablets, but I would have preferred it on a tablet for sure. What else you got? I mean, not too much else. I think I covered most of what I want. I want to talk about, and this should come as no surprise to anyone who's been listening this far, but this Dinosaur Island Roar and Write completely replaces Dinosaur Island for me. Hmm yeah yeah i mean it feels like this game does the theme better which is a theme that i love with almost no setup or tear down time so i can't really see a reason to pull dinosaur island off the shelf now that rar and right exists and it travels better like not that we're traveling but when we are yeah. <laughs> we'll travel better i have a couple minor complaints about the roar and right okay Aside from you made the erasers so adorable, I hate to use them. <laughs> um, you talked about accessibility with the app. The dice with the amber color, 
I get why they did it. The whole Amber theme from like the original Jurassic Park book slash movie. I do think that the color of the dice sometimes makes the DNA a little harder to see. And they do have the unique shapes, but that's probably my like a slight complaint that I feel like a different dice color would serve accentuating the DNA a a bit better. Yeah, it it looks like the silkscreen process or the heat transfer process that they used for putting the symbols on the dice may have changed the color and maybe it is because they're amber colored or, or something like that, but they don't match what's on the sheet. That is true. And it's not that big a deal because they all have a unique symbol, but I definitely see where you're coming from there. And then the second complaint, I made my husband listen to it, so all of you get to listen to it too, has to do with one of the specialists. I really hate the illustration of the Union Boss Specialist, where he just looks like a mobster, angry guy up there playing with his dinosaur toys. (laughs) Not to get political, but I'm very pro-Union, so I really didn't like how he was drawn, but I did like him as a specialist. I um, liked that his incident was getting more people jobs, and on the Rum Park phase, it was more security to protect said workers. So I thought his abilities that he did were spot on, but I think he could have had a slightly friendlier friendlier <laughs> illustration. Yeah, a little less stereotypical, sure. Yeah. <laughs> my big complaint for this game, and I'm wagging, wagging my finger in the air so you know it's serious. It's probably not. Is... I was expecting to draw dinosaurs, and I have drawn (laughs) zero dinosaurs playing this game. (laughs) Egregious. I'll be sending a letter. No, you won't. (laughs) And it's probably to his benefit that he didn't have to draw dinosaurs because even with I'd be bad at it. Even with just drawing the squares, my parks were still prettier. Even though I was losing, my parks were beautiful, (laughs) and I mean, they gave you a grid. I don't know how your park wasn't as pretty. They gave you erasers. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I think that's going to do it for us. Yep. Dinosaur Island Roar and Ride is a keep for us and a recommendation to all of you. Yep. You've been listening to Game Night with the Saints with us, your hosts, Jess and Brad St. Pierre. If you like what you just heard, please consider leaving us a review on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps. You can also follow us on Instagram at Saint Gamers or Twitter at Saint underscore Gamers to let us know what you think and be notified when the next episode goes live. We also have a Ko-Fi account linked at the bottom of the show notes if you feel like tossing us a couple of bucks to help offset the costs of running the podcast and website. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, remember, it's just a game. <laughs>